if you, if you have your um, bulletins, please take them out. You have an outline there. The story, there's a story of Purim. A number of things. We have visitors and guests. We have people who keep forgetting what this holiday is all about. Amazing thing about the Jewish holidays is God has given them to us for a reason. Not just to eat, not just to have a party, although I believe God wants us to rejoice and have a party and rejoice in what God has done. The holidays are not just like uh, just a frivolous uh, idea, but God gave us special holidays to rejoice and give thanks for a number of reasons. To give thanks to God for who He is and what He's done. To remember certain of His deliverances, the, how He delivered and cared for our people. The holidays are given to us to remind us that God sent His Son, the Messiah, Yeshua, the greatest message of all. And there we might speak about other things and evils and difficulties that are going on. We should be also making sure that in some way we weep. You know, you ever, anyone here, this is dangerous, watch O'Reilly, anybody here? A couple of you? Andrew, do you? Oh, good, very good, okay. okay. That's a private joke. Um, um, some of us watch Megan and Hannity uh, in the afternoon. But uh, what I think, whenever the Reverend Franklin Graham is on, some of you might have made a note, he speaks against evil, but whenever he can, he always gives the gospel. And really, I, I really appreciate that. He's much like his father, but he always has to get that. He does it, I think, very wise and tactful. If you're not a believer, you probably despise that. But he always gets the gospel out, the good news of Messiah. And he does it in such a wonderful way. And that is our message, folks. We need to identify and love people and care about and deal with the, the events that are taking place in this world. Horrible, horrible, mind-boggling events. I it's so mind-boggling what's taking place with ISIS and the different uh, Islamic terrorist group. Can you all say that with me? Islamist terrorism. Okay, as long as you know you're a minority. But no, not a minority. Uh, anyway, um, getting too political there. Slow down. Anyway, um, he, he speaks about that, and we should. But remember, no matter what goes on, we should be always sharing the good news, looking for ways to do it, not bludgeoning people, but lovingly, wisely tactful, because dealing with many issues in the world really don't save people. What saves people is the good news. And this congregation is very good because we know the good news. The good news is Yeshua died, was buried, was resurrected for our sins. That's the good news. And that's what we ask people to believe. So with that, you're sitting there. He better start soon because this is getting long. Anyway, okay, I'll, I'll finish that. Um, so what I like is that we're going to start, uh, we want to talk about, I love talking about Jewish holidays, and this one's good. The holiday of Purim, the book of Esther, has a few unique things that I think most of us are aware of. Just the quick unique things, because I try to get everything in on Purim. The one thing that's unique about the book of Esther is the name of God is not mentioned. Those of you who didn't know, I mean, all the other books of the Bible are, have God's name. Esther is not mentioned. And early believers way back before Yeshua's time, even Jewish people, when they were getting together and recognizing what God's word was, they struggled a little with Esther. 
God's name's not mentioned. How can that be different than all the other books? See, that's what they've always noticed. The different books are so unique from all other books. But Esther was unique, but it didn't have God's name. So that's the one unusual thing about it. But if ever you see the hand of God, and it's almost as if God purposely left it out because he wants us to see his sovereign hand behind the scenes. So it's, that's a unique thing about the book of, of Esther. The other unique thing about the book of Esther, which is totally meaningless, has nothing to do with anything whatsoever, it has the longest verse in the Bible. Nice trivia, just so you know. And then most of you know that, and that would be Esther. You are... See, now you can't... Yeah, you're, you're eyeing Esther and forgot the question. Anyway, so the, the longest verse in the Bible is found Esther 8, 9. Oh, okay. The longest verse in the Bible is found in this book that we're going over, verse 8 and 9. So it, it is a, a, a special thing. Uh, another thing about this book is every year Jewish people, tonight, tomorrow, read through the whole Megillah. Megillah is the whole scroll of the book of that lovely lady. And they read through that whole book. So these are special things. Purim is one of the Jewish holidays that God didn't command us to keep. Some people are surprised at that. What God did command us to keep in the Jewish holiday or Jewish holidays that he gave to, uh, to Israel and the Jewish people was the Shabbat. He gave them Shabbat, and that's all found in Leviticus 23. Shabbat, he gave us uh, Rosh Hashanah, I'm sorry, he gave us Passover, he gave us first fruits, he gave us Shavuot, which means seven or Pentecost, he gave us uh, Rosh Hashanah, he gave us Yom Kippur, he gave us Sukkot. Those are the ones that God commanded the Jewish people in the nation of Israel to observe. Now there's two others that are not mentioned there that we do keep. And I always get, the reason I say I always get people saying, ah, then you shouldn't do them. Well, of course we should do them. The two other ones are Hanukkah and Purim. These speak of God's deliverance. They're special holidays that speak of God's deliverance. There's really three. One that we command, or commanded as Passover, Hanukkah, Purim. The deliverance of God, of his people, in very, very dark, difficult times. So those are some of the important things about Esther. But if you have your outlines, I want you to look at them. Because as we deal with the different things about Esther... uh, I'm going to lose my mind. Okay. Um, The theme of the book of... Get out. The theme of this book is really found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis. And we read there that God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has kept that promise throughout the ages. Those who curse the Jewish people, God usually curses them with the same curse he wanted to give our people. Those who bless our people, God blesses them special. You trace it throughout the Bible, it works out. God blesses those who bless my people. That doesn't mean everything they do is right. But it does mean to have the right spiritual godly attitude toward God's people. And that he has a promise and a program for them. Those who rose up against God, we see Pharaoh tried it. And Nebuchadnezzar. And we should remember these names. And Haman. Persians, Greeks, Titus, the Crusades. The Inquisition, the pogroms, the Nazis, the terrorists, the religion of Islam, Arafat, Hitler, Stalin, and it goes on. The list just goes on and on. 
But those who rise up, God reverses the curse. And when you think of Purim, I, I think of 1945 and afterwards the trials at Nuremberg, Germany. The, the trials that they had there, one German official, as he was condemned to be hung, hanged, as he was condemned, they heard him whispering as he was leaving away, being condemned to swing by the gallows. And he quietly said, Purim, 1945. God doesn't forget. God reverses the curse. And he doesn't allow uh, people to get uh, not punished for attacking our Jewish people. There's a famous report I always like to read during Purim. Some of you like to hear it. Maybe you've heard it before. But um, on March 1st, 1953, the Holocaust, the war ended in 1945. Eight years later, one of the greatest, greatest, most wicked mass murderers in all of human history, a man by the name of Joseph Stalin, who murdered so, so, so many people. And it says, this was eight years after the Holocaust that took the lives of six million Jewish people. Joseph Stalin unveiled a new proposal to end and get rid of and destroy all the Jews of the Soviet Union. Another three million. Eight years later, he was out to kill another three million more Jewish people. And on March 1st, he had a meeting at the Kremlin with all his people. And he gathered them all together. And this was what he was proposing. It says on March 1st at noon, Stalin called a meeting for all the people in the Kremlin and he read to the Soviet leaders, he had a plan to how to exterminate and destroy the rest of the Jewish people in the Soviet Union. And according to someone's secret transcript, he said these words. He said, this is my plan. We'll announce to all the people that a plot has been made to kill me. This is what we're going to do. He's describing this on March 1st. He said it will be a devious plan that we'll tell everyone, a clever one planned by doctors, all of whom happened to be Jewish. It was clear that the key word there was Jewish. He was going to destroy all the Jewish people. This is what he said he was going to do. When the plot is exposed, he says, we're going to take all the Jewish people, place them in special railroad cars again, and send them to far north, uh, the far north Siberian plains. However, he says, on the way, only a third of the passengers of the special trains will arrive at the destination. Pack up the trains, Jewish people, go on the way to Siberia. But on the way, only a third of those people are going to make it. What will happen to the two-thirds on the train? He says, two-thirds will fall victim to the anger and the masses of the people at every stop in Russia. And he says, according to the librarian, when Stalin finished reading the proposal, there was dead silence in the room because no one would go against him. Stalin was furious. He cursed his minister, a cabinet minister. He walked out slamming the door. That was on March 1st. The next day, March 2nd, the day after outlining this plan to destroy all the Jewish people, a week before it was going to take place, he wanted it done on March 9th, a week before the extermination of three million Jewish people have taken place, Stalin the next day, after saying that on March 1st, the next day dropped dead of a stroke. Stalin died of a stroke. He lay in state for a week and he was buried on March 9th, which was the Jewish holiday of Purim. God has a unique way of reversing it. God appreciates the applause. 
You might also appreciate this little humorous one. Most of you heard it. I think you'd like to hear it again. But supposedly after the execution of Osama bin Laden, I have to hesitate because one year I said the wrong word there, as our vice president said too. One year I didn't say Osama bin Laden. I said Barack Obama. Anyway, but we did lose people over that. But, you know... I, But after he was executed, he made his way to the pearly gates, they tell us. There he was greeted by George Washington. How dare you attack the nation I helped conceive, yells Mr. Washington, slapping Osama in the face. Patrick Henry comes up from behind. You wanted to end the Americans' liberty. So, uh, he says, so you gave them death. Henry punches Osama in the nose. James Madison comes up next and says, This is why I allowed for the federal government to provide for the common defense. He delivers a devastating kick to Osama's knee. Osama is subjected to similar beatings from John Roanoke of Virginia. I'm sorry, uh, John Randolph of Roanoke. James Monroe and 65 other people who have the same uh, love for liberty and the Americans. As he rides on the ground in pain, Thomas Jefferson picks him up to hurl him back toward the gate where he is to be judged. As Osama, this actually took place just a couple years ago. As Osama waits the journey to his final very hot destination, he screams, this is not what I was promised. And an angel replies to him and says, I told you there would be 72 Virginians waiting for you. (laughs) What do you think I said? It's funny, Jewish holidays, you talk about Pharaoh and you talk about Antiochus. These were horrible, horrible times for our people, bleak, dark times, that it looked like our people were in danger of annihilation throughout all of history. But it's good that we can laugh now and eat and rejoice. Why? Because he is faithful to his promises. God made promises and he keeps them. The exciting thing is he made promises to Israel and contrary to the way the world is going today against Israel, replacing Israel, trying to destroy Israel, making them guilty of every horrific crime in the world. In spite of that, God remains faithful to his people. Do they do wrong? Yes. And God disciplines his children. But God still has a promise and a program. And so when you think of Passover, when you think of Hanukkah, when you think of Purim, think God is faithful. Write these words down and you think about this holiday. Holiday, the Purim holiday, it speaks about God's promise. Somewhere, write it down anywhere. Speaks about God's faithfulness. Speaks about God's deliverance. Speaks about God's control. God's sovereignty. Say it, sovereignty. Sovereignty. And you know what it means. God does what He wants, when He wants, the way He wants, without checking with us. God is in control. Sovereignty. Nothing escapes His notice. Sovereignty. That's that's this holiday. Uh, God, it speaks about God reversing curse. So, when you think of this, fill it in. Because God is sovereign, we're in control. Because God's faithful, because God is in control, therefore there is an application for us. It's not enough to know history. It's not enough to know what God did 
It always speaks to us. That's why God gave us the word. Because God is sovereign in control, we therefore, all of us, can trust God with the details of our life. And we need God's assurance and comfort now when things are going wrong in all the world. God is still in control. And so we speak about the story of Purim, put it in there. Purim is a story of God's faithfulness or God's faithful deliverance, how he delivered our people. The first thing, I, I, when you talk about the story, I want you to understand the historical context. Historical context of the, the book of Esther. That's all. You don't get a second chance. The story of Purim. Background. Jewish people were in the land. Uh, God brought them in the land, you know, for, with Joshua. We went through uh, uh, for a couple years, Deuteronomy. They're in the land now. They're in the year somewhere around in the land, somewhere around the year 1400 BCE. They're there for a couple hundred years under the period of Judges. After the period of Judges, God establishes them under the period of the kings. The kings would be uh, Saul, David, Solomon. It's what I call the United Kingdom. God brought them in there about 120 years, taking us to about 920 BCE. After the United Kingdom, there was the divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And that lasted, Israel lasted from about 920 to 722 BCE. Another 200 years, the kingdom of the north. They had their own kings. And that was their own nation. If those of you want to know, they had 19 kings in the north. And not one was ever recorded as good. Israel never had a good king in the north. David was good. Solomon was half-half. Solomon was no good. Uh, Solomon was half half and Saul was no good. Anyway, David was good. But the kings of the north, after the divided kingdom, 19 of them, never one was recorded as good. But there were the kings in the south, in Judah. And that took place, they lasted from 922 to about 586. In that kingdom, they had 20 kings in their history, and eight of them are recorded as good. So we get to the time at the end of that period, somewhere around 605. BCE, when the, the kings in the south, Judah had already, uh, in the north, Israel was taken captive. The kings in the south, Judah, 605, were being afflicted and controlled and dominated by a kingdom called Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took over the world at that time, came into Israel. He uh, took over control of Israel, put up a puppet king, removed one of the kings of Israel, and they were under Nebuchadnezzar's control, 605. He took people captive like um, Ezekiel and other nobles. And that lasted for about another eight years till about 597 when Nebuchadnezzar didn't like what his puppet kingdom was doing there. And he took more captives to Babylon. In 597, that was uh, Daniel and other young people he took captive. That didn't do too well. He had a puppet king. Finally, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar says, kingdom of the south, you're finished. It's over. You're done. You're not a good servant of mine, so I'm going to destroy you. 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the nation of Israel, levels the temple, destroys all the people. A tremendous, tremendous, horrible destruction. That's what the book of Lamentations is all about. Took place 586. Our Jewish people, God's promise was questioned. The promise of our people in the land? What about Israel's king? What about their prophet? What about their priest? No more. They've been taken out of the land to Babylon. They were there for about 70 years. Maybe they're not sure where they start the dating from. Maybe 605. 70 years. Around 540, 70 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon destroyed. 
New kingdom comes in by the name of the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, about 540, said to the Jewish people in Babylon, in that area of Persia, go home, go back to Israel. So many of the Jewish people, not all, many of the Jewish people went back to Israel and they had a nation again. Many of the Jewish people still stayed in Babylon. And there was a whole Jewish community in Babylon. And our whole Jewish Talmud and Jewish traditions were developed in Babylon. Jewish people are back in. So now we have the life this is what I want you to write here. The life of the Jewish people in about the year between 540 and 520. We know and have an idea. And all this, let me summarize all this. This is all to show you God's faithfulness to his people. 540 to 520, after the destruction of the Jewish people, they're back in the land. God shows us life for the Jewish people in the land of Israel. 540 to 520. We have it because we know the book of Zechariah tells us. The book of Haggai tells us as well. The leader in the nation of Israel at that time, not important, but his name was Zerubbabel. He was the governor of the king. When you think of the Israeli government, I want you to think of it this way always. Prophet, priest, king. That was their three branches of government. Here in America... We have three branches uh, as well in our government. The president, the president, and the president. <laughs> but aside from that, so. Anyway, I didn't say it. Anyway, they had three branches of government in, in the in nation there. So we get life in Israel and how God was governing and watching over our nation. 540, Now, 80 years later, We can ask the same question. How was God faithful to his promises to his Jewish people 80 years later in the land of Israel? What took place 80 years later? We know again because we we see it in the writings. And though at that time, 80 years later, after that, was Nehemiah. He was the governor. He was like the king. We call it a governor. There were no kings. He was the governor at the time. We had a priest along with same time as Nehemiah. The priest was Ezra. He was the great scribe, Ezra, one of the, the heads of the Sanhedrin, helped put together our whole Old Covenant scriptures, the Tanakh. He, there was a prophet, the, uh, there was the king, who would be, or governor, was, uh, who did I just say, uh, Nehemiah. The priest would be, uh, at that time, was Ezra. And the prophet would be, will I give you half the kingdom if you get this one, Anybody? I will give you a ring of gold and I will give you half the kingdom. Just tell me at that time who was the prophet? Who? No, he was 80 years before. I just told you he was. This is Nehemiah Ezra. And who was the prophet at the time? He was with the... I just told you Zechariah was with Haggai. And he was in Zerubbabel. And he was with uh, uh, the, uh, the priest at that time. was a guy named Yeshua, Joshua. Who? I can't hear you. Jeremiah. No, he died a long time ago. I'm, I'm not going on. You're, yeah, you're here. You're here until someone gets that. He was an Italian prophet. Uh, Malachi. Good. Okay. All right. We're never getting done today, folks. We're just, there's not a chance. But we have food later. It's okay. Let's have fun. All right? Get food out of your mind and, you know, welcome. In Israel, 520, we had Zerubbabel, the governor, Yeshua, or Joshua was a priest, and the prophets were Haggai, Zechariah. Eighty years later, still in the land, 
was Nehemiah, the governor of the king. The priest was Ezra. The prophet was Malachi. God was preserving our people. See, that's the story in the Bible. God's always watching and preserving our people. If they're out of line, he disciplines them. Uh, If they follow and obey him, he blesses them. But the question is, and a book answers this, what about our people way in the land of Persia who never came back to Israel? I know God's faithful to the people in Israel, but what about those people in Persia? Lost, lonely, depressed, never came back. Is God still the God of the Jewish people, whether they're in uh, Texas or California or in Persia? Is God still watching over them? And the answer is yes, and we have the account. And the account comes to us in the book of Esther. That's a real ha. Esther. God is telling us how he was preserving our people even in a foreign land, even under uh, the domination of a foreign nation. So now, and that, by the way, remember I said one was 520, the other is 440, was right in the middle, about uh, 480. Right in the middle of that time, we have a count of Jewish life in a foreign land and how God was watching over our people. That's what the story is really all about. That's your background history. Okay, I'll try to summarize other parts. Otherwise, you're just stuck here. Okay, so now we tell the story of Esther. The story... All right, all right, I'll give it to you. You're agonizing here. Now we're going to tell the story of Esther and Mordechai and Haman. And I'm getting excited too. All right. So you go through and you read the Megillah. And in your outlines, you have it. Chapter one. I want you to summarize it. I'll try to pick up a couple of verses here. But summarize. Chapter one. Everyone look up here. Chapter one begins with a great banquet. This king by the name of Ahasuerus, he loved to party. He had a big banquet. In the banquet, there developed a problem. In the problem, they found a solution. That's your summary of chapter 1. Follow along with me. Chapter 1, the banquet. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for everybody. And it says, and he displayed his riches. Chapter 1, verse 4 you got to be quicker up there. Good, okay. I'm moving. And he, developed, and he displayed his riches, royal glory and splendor. Great magic for 180. A six, it's a, a six-month party or dis, uh, display of his riches. And it says, when these days were completed, the king gave a great banquet. So the book opens up with life in Persia. The king is giving a great banquet. He was a mighty, mighty king of uh, Persia. Great banquet. Great, great king at the time. And this was about, if you need dates, 480 BCE. And so in the the party that he had, the problem developed. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace who belonged to the king. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, the Bible does say God gave us wine to make the heart of man merry. This probably was too merry, okay? They drank day and night for eight days or a week, and they were very merry. So he made a command to blah, 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 all those people. His command, bring in Queen Vashti to me. It was a special party. The women had their party. The men had their party. This was not good. We want to see my lovely Queen Vashti. So he made a request. History tells us that he asked her to come naked. 
just with the royal crown on her head. That's what history tells us. We don't know, but that was the, that's what they say. So he said, bring Queen Vashti the king with a royal crown, should say only, to display her beauty. But Queen Vashti refused. You don't refuse the king. That's all there is. That custom today, it's a little different, but we're not going to go there. But so they, she refused. And because of that, they panicked in the kingdom. And all his officials said, if she refused you, we as husbands, we have no chance. They will follow her lead. And so there was a major problem. What are we supposed to do? So the solution was, they came to the king at the end of chapter 1, and they said, listen, king, you must remove her from being queen. History tells us he didn't kill her, but he did remove her. And so chapter 1 is really the setting for all this, where he he did remove her. And it says that in chapter 1, verse uh, 18, he says, The ladies of Median Persia have heard the uh, queen's conduct, and they will speak with contempt with all their husbands. So he made the command there, Vashti should no longer come into the presence of the king Ahasuerus. Chapter 1 is over. Chapter 2, every chapter focuses on its own. Uh, Andrew? Uh, he's not here. But I should push it out to him that he should one of these years take this on as a project so we could put on a big production of the whole, of the whole book of Esther. So in chapter 1, it's finished. Chapter 2, the, the, uh, the uh, curtain goes up. And if I can describe... Oops, oops, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. Chapter 2, I'm on my throne in my room and I'm King Ahasuerus and I... Uh, this is not good. Vashti. Vashti. I miss my one and only. Where is my Vashti? What have I done? He's lonely. And so they give him, a, uh, they give him a, an answer to his problem. You know, what did I put down with the first word there in, the, in chapter 2? Chapter 2. Labor, put it, fill it in for chapter 2. We have a contest. Uh, there was a problem there, and so now he had a contest. As the king was depressed, they all came to the king. No problem, king. Listen, we have a great kingdom. We're going to make a Miss Sousa contest. They're going to come from all over the kingdom, 127 provinces. We're going to find the most beautiful women in the land. They're all going to come because they're all going to want to, and we're going to pick special people in every province. They're all going to come to you, and at the end of this period, which took about, history tells us, about three and a half years, believe it or not, they're going to bring all these women to the kingdom, to his special place, and they're going to give them cosmetics for six months and special foods and cosmetics for another six months. And at the end of this time, they will bring in a woman to the king and he will look at her and he'll go, or he'll look, we're going to find the one who's going to win. The one you pick is going to be the queen, the next queen in place of Ashton. So the king likes that. And the book of uh, chapter two, the book of, uh, of this woman, okay, <laughs> Okay, uh, it says, chapter 2, verse 1, after these things, the king, Ahasuerus, he remembered. He missed Vashti. And so they said in chapter 2, verse 2, let beautiful young women, virgins, come before the king. And you pick the one. Chapter 2, verse 4, the contest. Then young ladies who please the king will be placed in, in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king. So they had the contest. And a verse tells us, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Okay, good. Verse 7, it says, There was a woman, and uh, he, uh, well, first there was a man by the name of Mordechai. He was bringing up his lovely cousin, just to let you know. 
wasn't his daughter, wasn't his granddaughter, it was his cousin. He was bringing up Hadassah. Now you can't say anything when I say Esther. No, no. You already did it for Hadassah. I'm not going on both. You have one or the other. Hadassah. Esther. I quit. Okay. So, where was I? I have no idea. But we're having fun. I'm at, I am. Okay. You should say, okay. Uh, the results. So it says at the end of all these results, uh, uh, this lovely later, uh, lady, his uncle's daughter, she had no father and mother, and the young lady was beautiful of form and face. When her father and her mother died, Mordechai yeah. took her as his own. Finally, the results of the contest was the end of uh, uh, 2 verse uh, 16. It says, and Esther, not yay, ah. She found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. The results were, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the other virgins. So they set her royal, the royal crown on her head and made her queen. That's the results of this great banquet. And then she gave a banquet. Now, chapter 2, I love this. It's over. Chapter 1, the curtain went down. Curtain went up for chapter two. We had a nice chapter two contest. Lovely lady won, and it's over. But the author, God purposely puts a little paragraph in there that has nothing to do with anything. And he, but he gives us a foretaste. It's a shadow. It's what an author might do, but it's what the God, uh, the Holy Spirit did. And we see a little side conversation going on in the town of Susa. And we see here on the edge of maybe a building, two men here huddled and talking. A guy by the name of Big Thana and Teresh. Two men. They were the king's servants, and they did not like the king, and so they plotted to kill the king. Good. They got it all done. But over here was a Jewish guy by the name of Mordechai. And he heard the whole thing going on. So this man was loyal to God and was loyal to the king. And we see that at the end of chapter 2, having really nothing to do with the flow of the story. And the conversation, it says, in those days, Mordechai was sitting at the king's gate in Big Fan and Teresh. Two of the king's officials, uh, those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to good man, and he told lovely lady, and she informed the king in good man's name. And that really ends it. And it says here in verse 23, Now when the plot was investigated, found to be so, these two men were hanged in gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. End of chapter 2. Little story. It was written down. Book of the Chronicles. We have it in history. Chapter 2 goes down. Chapter 3, the, the, the curtain goes up. Now in chapter 3, you could write these words down. There was a promotion. There was a plan. And there was a proclamation. Chapter 3, hang these, these three words can describe chapter 3. The promotion should have been for who? Yay. Not you, me. That's my yay. Okay? Anyway, should have been for Mordechai. But chapter 3 is unusual. It begins with the promotion of Haman. Yeah, you're, you're allowed. 
but not too long. Okay. <laughs> chapter, um, chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted wicked man, the son of so-and-so, the Agagite, and advanced him with authority. So he went marching through the town. And as he went through marching through the town, second in the king's command, everyone bowed down. You had to bow down before this wicked man by the name of Haman. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate all bowed down and paid homage to this man. And so, to Ham. Uh, no, man. And um, so the king had commanded him as the king had commanded him. But Mordechai, he neither bowed down nor paid homage to him. He wouldn't do it. So as, as wicked man was walking through the town, everyone's bowed down. All of a sudden, one Jew is standing up. What is this guy? What are you doing? So they all came to bad man and said, and he said, how come this guy doesn't bow down? He's got a rule, a law that his people have. They only bow down to God. So wicked man was furious. His plan was he couldn't handle that. He couldn't let it go. So he says, I don't want to just, he could have just killed them. I want to kill his people. And so chapter 3, he finds out who the people are. He goes to the king. He makes this whole plan. He says, king, there's a group of people in your kingdom that are no good. And they're out to destroy you and the kingdom. And it's to our best interest if you destroy these people. And not only that, king, I will pay a lot of money to your, to your treasury. I will do everything. I, I'm, I am for you, king. And I'm for this kingdom. We must eliminate these people. And the king's, oh, my mighty, mighty, good, wonderful Haman. My faithful Haman. Can you do that? Can you get rid of those bad people? And so he says, sure, here's my ring. And bad man takes it. And he stamps a proclamation. Chapter 3 is all about, he makes a proclamation. It goes far and wide through all the land. And as he makes that, that's his, his plan. And he makes the proclamation at the end of chapter 3. Follow along the, uh, the proclamation. It says, verse 13, chapter 3, uh, 3, 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people. That's the plan. And young men and women, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the month, on the month of Adar, and to seize their property and destroy them. What he really did was, he says, let's pick a day to destroy all the Jews in the kingdom. And I'm just, for illustration's sake, saying, say it was January. So they put in a hat, 12 pieces of paper, January through December. And they came up with one. They picked it up December. He goes, okay, in December. Then they booked the days of the week. He says, oh, on this day, we're going to destroy all the Jewish people. And it was made a proclamation throughout all the land. And it went throughout all the land. That's, that's the end of chapter 3. The proclamation was made. And it says, on one day the 13th, we will destroy all the people, seize all their kingdom. And I like the last verse of chapter 13. It says, the couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel of Zusa, while the king and wicked man sat down to drink, <laughs> you wanted to, the uh, city of Susa was in confusion. Chapter 3 is over. Chapter 4 begins outside in the court, right outside the king's court. You see good man Mordechai and all the people reading the proclamation and all the proclamations that went throughout all the land and from Ethiopia to India, 127 pro The proclamation was, we'll just say on December 12th, all the Jewish people will be destroyed. All their, take all their plunder, destroy all them and kill them. And so when 
Mordechai hears this. Chapter, he dresses in rags and uh, he mourns outside and he sends to his cousin in the kingdom to Esther. And he says, you have to go for our people. You have to go to the king. And so what we, in chapter 4, write these four words down. He pleads with her, makes a plea, go. She refuses. He says, you have to go. And she goes, okay, I will. So I put in the four words, a plea or refusal, a challenge, you must go. And then she accepts it. And so that's really what takes place in chapter 4. He says, Esther, through help, go to the king. Lovely lady says, tell my cousin, I can't. They came to Mordechai, she can't. You're pretty weak. She can't. I'm confused where I am. No. <laughs> she, she, uh, no. she says, I can't. He says, you must. You're our only hope. And then finally she says, okay, I will. The famous words are in chapter 4 for this book. Verse 13. Then good man told lovely lady, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than... It's a really great theological statement here. You can't escape any more than any one of our Jewish people. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jewish people from another place. Where did he get that? Somebody? Anybody? Good. All right. All right. Genesis 12, 3. God will bless those who bless our people, curse those who curse our people. If you don't go, somebody else will go. Why? Because God is still going to save our people. I don't care how bad it looks. God is going to bring salvation to our people. But if you don't go, Esther, if you don't go, God's going to save our people and you're responsible. You will lose your life. And it's a, it's a great, great statement. And it says, If you remain silent at this time, relief, deliverance will arise for our people from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether God has not raised you up for today. Esther, do you think... You didn't get it. Do you think you got the kingdom based on your beauty and your charm? You got it because the hand of God wants you there for this time. God has called you for our people. The acceptance. Then she says to her cousin, go assemble all the Jewish people and, and found in Susa. Uh, fast for me. Do not eat or drink. Night or day. And I and my maidens will fast the same way. And thus I will go into the king. And if I perish, I will perish. I will take my life in my hand, but I'm going to do what's right before God. Chapter 5 gets... The, fl- the plot thickens here. Write them down. Favor, banquet, and a pride. So the, the chapter 5 opens up with this. The king is mourning. He's in his throne room. No one has seen him for a month. If you are in that room and you come into his room and he doesn't hold out the golden scepter, they wait. If he doesn't do that, the guards take the person away and kill him. That was the custom. You were scared to go into that room. And now lovely lady Esther decides she's coming in. She's, got, she's taken her life in her own hands. And chapter 5 begins with her walking in and the king looking. And he holds out the scepter. She wins favor in his eyes. And then he asks her, in a sense, how could you take your life in your hands and come in here? 
How could you do such a bold thing? Chapter 5. Now it came about the third day Esther stood there. Uh, uh, uh. uh, She put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court. She came to the king's room and the king was sitting there on his throne uh, opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw her, Esther the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to her the golden scepter which was in his hand. So she came near and touched the top. And the king said, Esther, what is troubling you to do such a bold step? What is your request? Even half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she said, well, if it please the king, and if the king, will the king and Haman come this day to a special banquet that I prepared for them? That was her thing. She knew how to get to the king. And this king had a good one. Okay, he was big. And, well, I'm making it up. But anyway, so she knew how to get to them. So she won favor. She gives a great banquet that night. She gives a banquet like he's never had. I like to think that this king never experienced this banquet that this Jewish woman cooked. He, he got such a Jewish meal that night that you would never believe what he got. And so he came in and he said to her, he says, the smells are different here tonight. It is wonderful. And people have told me what the actual menu was for him that night. If you look hard in a lot of the books, you find out what the menu was. As they came in, the first part of the menu was chicken soup. And she made one of the best chicken soups, second to Elsie, but it was very, very good chicken soup. So they drank wine at the table. And the king said to this lovely, what's your petition? Then it'll be granted to you. What is your request? Even to have of the kingdom, it shall be done. I'm, I tease, but she, she, she gave him the chicken soup. Then she gave him some chopped liver. Now, that's not everyone's favorite. They say you have to acquire a taste. But there is a restaurant in New York. Now you know I'm Jewish. People say, how do you know your congregational leader? Because when a Jew talks about places in the world, he talks about a piece of fish or a piece of meat or chopped liver that he had. He... So I've gone to this restaurant in New York and it is the best chopped liver in the world. It is. I will match it with any chopped liver in the world. Friend, right. you'll be sick for a month, but it's great. <laughs> On the table, they come there and they got this big silver canister and they got the liver in there that you wouldn't think to go near in a million years. But they start chopping that liver up. What do they put in there? Uh, horseradish, not horseradish, uh, radishes, Onions. What else, dear? What else? Then on the table, they take schmaltz. Everyone knows schmaltz. No, you don't know schmaltz. You're all confused. That's chicken fat, okay? And uh, chicken fat. And you take the chicken fat and they pour it in from up top. Then you see like a, it's almost like a pancake syrup coming in. And they stir this thing up and I guarantee that it is the best chopped liver you will ever have. And I guarantee you will be sick at least all night. And so, anyway, so she gave him a meal. 
She gave him the chicken soup and the chopped liver, and she gave him a brisket like no one ever tasted before. And then she gave them potato latkes and with also chicken fat. Everything's with chicken fat. In fact, at this restaurant in New York City, on the table, they have uh, pickles, you know, good Jewish kosher pickles. Then they have sour tomatoes there on the table. Then they also have uh, uh, peppers and onions on the table there. And then they have the rye bread on the table. And then they have the little pancake uh, pitchers. But they're not pancake. It's chicken fat. It's just outright chicken fat. And so, uh, and, and right on the table. And so you get your bread and your thing, and you get your chopped liver and your chicken, and, and that everything's with that. Then they make the mashed potatoes at your table, but they take the chicken and they put more chicken fat in there. Then they have the special, what they call caution botas, and they take the chicken fat and pour it in there. It is a miracle if you can survive that night. <laughs> An absolute miracle. Anyway, so, and then she, de- then she has the typical tzimis, challah, and the rogala. We're not going to go into it. So, this king's had such a meal. He goes, okay, lovely queen, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom. And she says this, have I found favor in the sight of the king? If it please the king, grant my, to grant my petition and do what I request. May the king and wicked man, Haman, come to the banquet I'm going to have tomorrow night. She, I don't know if she chickened out. She had too much chicken. I don't know if she chickened out. But she did. She could have right then said, you got to get rid of Haman. He's going to kill me and my people. But she didn't. She held off. I'll give you another meal tomorrow night. If you can survive last night. I'll give you another meal. So she says, come, I prepared for you. Tomorrow I will do as the king says. So the meal is over. The king goes to his room to to mourn his sickness. Esther goes her way to clean the dishes. And wicked man Haman, he had a good meal. He's not sure what it was, but he had a good meal. And so he goes home that night. And as he goes home, along the way, he, everyone's bowing down to him, but there's that Jew, that Mordechai. He's not bowing down to anybody. And he can't handle it. And he goes home and he says, Zeresh, his lovely wife, what am I to do? So they give him an idea. This is what, calm, calm yourself before the banquet tomorrow. Then wicked man went out, glad of heart. And he, uh, he controlled himself when he saw him. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. Then wicked man recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance of the king magnified him and how he promoted him above all the princes and the servants of the king. And then wicked man also said, even though the queen let no one but me come with the king to the banquet, tomorrow I'm also invited. Yet I can't handle that Jew, Mordechai, sitting at the king's gate. So his wife says, honey, stop worrying. Tonight, get the servants outside to build a gallows about 75 feet in the air. Nice, big, high gallows. And in the morning, go to the king and say, King, get this man, hang him. And he says, ah, sounds like a good idea. And that's the end of chapter 5. It says they have a gallows built 50 cubics, about 75 feet. And in the morning, he asks the king to have good man hanged on it. Then go joyfully to the banquet and advise, uh, uh, and the advice, uh, the advice pleased Haman. So he made the gallows. And I like to think that night was an interesting night because you got lovely Queen Esther preparing for the next day. You got the king laying on his bed sick to his stomach. You got Mordechai praying. 
Because his life, he didn't know tomorrow morning was the last day of his life. And then you have wicked man looking out his window, seeing the gallows. Very happy. He goes to sleep. Esther cleans her dishes. The king tosses and turns. And good man is praying. That's how chapter 6 opens up. Now it's early in the morning. The whole night went by. It's early in the morning. And the king hasn't slept all night. He's been sick to his stomach. He's not sure he can handle another meal like that. So chapter 6, write this, sleepless in a reversal. Look what takes place. Chapter 6, verse 1. During the night, the king could not sleep, so he gave orders to bring, uh, uh, to bring the book of records, the chronicles. And as they were read before him, why, what's so significant about bringing the chronicles to, if you're not sleeping well? They put you to sleep? You're pretty unspiritual. You mean the Bible puts you to sleep? Yeah, yeah, okay. I've told you many times, we at Shuva could tell the whole world the secret to insomnia. We have it. We know it. But people don't want to sound so unspiritual to say it. But the cure to insomnia is to read certain parts of the Bible. I wouldn't read David and Goliath. That might keep you up quickly. But there are parts. And I always say, the, to me... The most difficult parts are Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. 58 verses, I'm thinking 58, 57 verses for two chapters. I can't make it through those two chapters without falling asleep. These are the leprosy laws. (laughs) If a man has a boil on his head and you look and you notice there's a hair coming out of it and the hair is green or white and there's a little red swelling underneath it and if it's white around it you are to go in and say I will look at that again in a week and in a week you come back and you look at the hair if the hair has turned black and the redness has gone away then he's okay but if not and you still don't like it you have to wait another week and come back and take a look at it again and this is just the boil then there's others you take a look at his skin and it goes on and on then after all that then it says now if you look on your wall in your house and you notice a little green there is some mold on your house you have to deal with that mold so I want you to scrape that mold and set it aside and to have someone come and take it out and then you look at that mold and you replaster it and you wash it and the priest has to come in and inspect it. And then the next week, he, ah, oh, fall asleep telling you. This is ridiculous. It's difficult. And that's just half of chapter 13. Then you got to look at your garments. And your garment's wearing out a little bit. You look at that. Is it a green garment or a black? Does is there have a mold on it? If it does, you got to rip it out. And you wait a week to see what's happened. And then you come back the next week. Did it expand? It is tough. And you got two chapters of this. I doubt at 2, 3 in the morning, if you can't sleep, you try to read those two chapters, you'll be gone. You really will be gone. But if you have the worst case of insomnia, then you, of course, go to the book of Exodus. Exodus, that's a good one, isn't it? Well, you know, Ten Commandments, the plagues, Moses, Pharaoh, that's half the book. The other half is you have to build God's house. And that tells you that you have a two-by-four with a joint and you have to put a silver nail in there 
And then you have to get a gold nail for there. And then you have to do 50 of these. And then you have to get another 5 by 6 and an 8 by 10 and a 4 by 2. And then you got to put them together and you have to have 17 of these and 24 of them. Then you have to get a curtain, a blue and purple and scarlet and with porpoise skin, which I don't know where they got porpoises. Anyway, and you have to get all these curtains. Then you get five of them here and five of them here. Then you get a six in the middle. You fold over the top and you get all the curtains around the edge. And then you have to connect them with joints and hooks. And then after all that, then you got to cover the top. And that's got to be a thicker thing. And you got to do them and float one over the top. And that takes you part of the book. Then... God describes it again, a second time. Then they have to rebuild it a third time. You, you can't get through Exodus, second half. It's tough. But if you have the worst case of insomnia in the world, then just turn to the Chronicles. See, I got back to the story. Chronicles. Because eight chapters of so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so. And those names, uh, names are masha, musha, The names to try to get through are almost impossible. The only thing I look forward to in First Chronicles is, and then there was Jabez. Some of you know. Jabez was more honorable than his brother. That's a nice little couple verses, but it's tough. And so the Chronicles can really put you to sleep. So the king asks the Chronicles, read the Chronicles, I'll fall asleep. But he gets to the part in the Chronicles that says, one day king there were, and he's, the king's about to fall asleep. And he says, one day king there was a plot to kill you. <laughs> I thought you were to put me to sleep. It says it here, there was a plot to kill you. These two men went to kill you. And the plot was investigated. They found out it was true. So they killed the people. And you were saved. He goes, really? Who did this? They said, this Jew by the name of Mordechai. Really? What happened? Well, you promoted Haman. Huh? What happened to the good Jew Mordechai? Now it's about seven in the morning. About seven in the morning. So the king says, I got to do something for this Jewish guy. He said, so is anyone in the court? Well, while that's going on, if you have the movie over here, Wicked Man woke up. He looks out the window. What's he see? <laughs> it looks nice. A little dummy's there. Going back and forth. I got it. Off he goes to the king. So the king says, oh, who, who's here? They open up. And they look through. They said, good man Haman's here. The king doesn't say, what's he here for? Bring him in. So the king says, mighty good, faithful Haman. Well, let's see where, where was I? I have no idea where I'm going here. Okay. Oh, yeah. Chapter 6, verse 4. So the king looks out, and it says, who's in the court? And they said, good man, or bad man, bad man Haman had just entered. And the king, to speak to the king, he wanted, he's, he's going to have good man hanged. 75 feet in the air, hang him on a gallows. So the king brings him in. Behold, wicked man standing in the court. The king says, let him come in. So bad man came in and the king said to him, what should be done for the man I want to... Here's the king. Good, good, faithful, loving Haman. You're so wonderful. What should be done for the man I want to honor? Mm-hmm. He wants to honor me. Let me tell you what you should do, king. 
You know your mighty, beautiful, wonderful horse? Ah, oh, yeah, good old faithful silver. Was it silver or bullet? Whatever. Lone Rangers with silver. Oh, silver. Roy Rogers had bullet. Okay, good. Just got to get him right. Anyway, I think. Anyway, so he says, all right. Yeah, I know that horse. So, good man, I, I think we should take some, one of my other underlings, who's pretty important, and have the man I want to ride on my horse. That's what Haman says. That, and the king says, that's good. That's good, king. I think we'll do that. And, and then the bad man says to him, I got something even better. What is that? You know your robe? Your royal robe? Yeah. Why don't you have someone place that on him too? <gasps> nice man, Haman. That's such a good idea. My horse, my rope. Not only that, king got something better. Your crown. Put that. Wow. Where do you get this wisdom, Haman? So the king looks at it and says, that is a really good idea. Can you go do that all day today for Mordecai the Jew? What? Do it for Mordecai the Jew. So that whole day, he has to get dressed up. Mordecai, travel through the whole kingdom saying, this is the man. And everyone knows the confrontation. It's between bad man and good man. And bad man's have him on the horse. Says, this is the man God wants to honor. He does this the whole day in such humili- hum- uh, humiliations, just hard, spends the whole day. Finally gets rid of that, rushes home to his lovely wife. That's chapter six. Where, okay. So it says, um, where was I? Chapter six, verse seven. Oh, no, we did all that. All right. Chapter 9, we did it, we did all that. Okay, so there we go. We got up to chapter 6, verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, and wicked man hurried home, mourning with his head covered. How embarrassed he was that whole day. And he gets home, and I love this scene when he gets home. His wife says, you're home. He says, I got to go to the banquet. Remember, it's the second night. It's the banquet. But honey, you're not going to understand what happened to me today. Did you have a good day, dear? Did you hang that bad man way up in the air? He goes, well, it didn't quite turn out that way. Wicked man recounted to Zeresh's wife and all his friends everything that had happened. And the wise men and Zeresh's wife said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you begun to fall as of Jewish origin, you are in deep trouble. Okay, it doesn't say that. You will not overcome him, but surely you will fall before him. So while they're still talking, they came to take him to the banquet, to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Chapter 7, there's the banquet. It starts off, really, don't panic. It's ending here. I'll summarize 8, 9, 10. Chapter 7, the banquet and the destruction. They came for the banquet. The king says to lovely woman Esther, on the second day as they drank the wine at the banquet, what's your petition, Queen Esther? Even to half to the kingdom. Then the queen replied, I found, if I found favor in your sight, king, please let my life be given to me in my, as my petition and my people also. For if we've been sold just to be slaves, he says, if we've been, we've been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated, had we only been as slaves as men and women, I wouldn't bother you. It wouldn't be worth your time. Then King Ahasuerus asked lovely queen, who is this 
Who is he who would dare to presume to do such a thing? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Then, I just like this one, Harbona sitting in the corner saying, Then Harbona said, one of the eunuchs, Behold the gallows standing at wicked man's house, 50 cubits high, which wicked man decided to hang good man who spoke on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. You probably could end the book right there. That's good. Let me just give you a quick summary. Chapter 8. Mordecai is honored and lifted up. There's a new plan. Because you can't reverse the first plan. But the new plan was that on that faithful day in December when the Jewish people will be destroyed, the king's going to send out a new edict throughout the whole land. That even though they're going to rise up against the Jewish people, the king says, my army and all my men and all my people give weapons and provisions and uh, whatever is needed to the Jewish people so they can rise up and defend themselves. And we will defend them too. So you better be careful if you're going to rise up against them. And they sent it out. It was a new proclamation. And it tells us in the land of uh, that whole land, all the Jewish people rejoiced. That's how chapter 8 basically ends. And chapter 9... Chapter 9, we see or fill it in with deliverance. The Jewish people were delivered and the holiday of Purim was instituted. Chapter 9, verse 1, in the 12th month, the 13th day, the king commanded that when the king's command and edict was about to be executed on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain their advantage over them, mastery over them, he was turned to the uh, contrary. So the Jewish people defended themselves and gained the mastery over their enemies. The Jewish people assembled in the cities of all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who had caused them harm. And no one could stand before the Jewish people for the dread of them had fallen on all the people. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who God delivered our Jewish people. And then we see the holiday porn was instituted, chapter 9, verse 22. Because on those days the Jewish people rid themselves of their enemies. It was a month which was turned from, uh, for them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to a holiday, that they should make those days of fasting and feasting and rejoicing and sending of portions of food and gifts to one another. In 29, uh, 28, so these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, just so you know, God didn't institute this. Mordechai did. And the word of God is there. It's not a command for us to do it. But the Jewish people have always done it. And God has placed it in the scriptures for us to enjoy. And we follow the lead of Mordechai. And so these days of Purim were not to fail from among our Jewish people. For their memory shall not fade from for their descendants. Chapter 10, Mordechai was exalted and made great. Lessons quickly from the story. Just write this in. One lesson. God is sovereign and in control, folks. He is sovereign and in control. An overheard conversation in the book. King's favor. A sleepless night in Susa. A delayed request. Haman's timely arrival. The heart of the king, the Bible says, is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
When Joseph, as a young man, was taken as a slave into Egypt, horrible, isn't it? A young man, 17 years old, taken into... God was in control. God was setting him up to be the head of the world. God had everything in control. When Moses was led out into the wilderness and left Egypt 40 years, taking care of sheep and goats and camels for 40 years, God was preparing Moses to do a great work. God is preparing you. He asks you to serve him, love him, and wait for God's leading and follow it. Everything is in the hand of the Lord. He has complete control. And I always like that verse. The, hand of the, uh, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The great, great story I always like to tell. The story of the nation of Israel. People don't know it. In 1947, the big, big discussion at the UN was, do we let the Jewish people become a nation? That was the big discussion on November 29th, I think it was, or 7th, uh, 1947 at the UN. And the whole world was discussing, will, should we let these Jewish people have their own nation again? There was what we called a partition plan. We'll give the Jewish people this portion, this portion, this portion, this portion, the Arabs, this portion, this portion, this portion. Should we do it? And the whole world is going to be voting on it. And right before they voted on it for months before, before that vote, the whole world was trying to decide what we should do. And the whole world looked to President Truman. The whole world. How would America go? You say, that's easy. Of course, we'd vote for Israel. Not so. Our whole State Department and all the Jewish, uh, and all the leaders in America were against it. And everyone was advising the president, don't you dare vote for a partition. Don't do it. And it went on and on. And finally the president said, I've heard from both sides. I'm sick. I don't want to hear about it anymore. No more discussion on the land of Israel. I am tired and fed up with it. And the Jewish community said, but we have to get to President Truman. And they say, nobody can get to President Truman. He's finished. He's made it clear. He's tired of the discussion. And the Jewish community found a Jewish man, a Jewish man by the name of Eddie Jacobson, and Eddie Jacobson was just a normal Jewish guy that had a haberdashery clothing store. But he was an army buddy of Truman in World War I. And Truman had a policy that all his buddies in World War I, when Truman wasn't anything, all his buddies, whenever they wanted, it was an open door, could walk into the White House and talk to the president. So the Jewish, Jewish whole community got together with Eddie Jacobson. You have to talk to the president. You can walk in that door. And he says, what do you want me to tell him? He says, he must meet with this little poor Jewish man by the name of Chaim Weizmann. He must meet with the president of these Jewish people. He said, but he won't do it. He's not going to talk. You must convince the president. And so Eddie Jacobson decided to go into the president's door. And he walks in. And as he walks in, the president looks and goes, nope, nope, but nope, not a word about the Jewish problem. I don't want to hear a word about the Jewish problem. So Eddie Jacobson just did the normal Jewish thing, started crying. <laughs> he started weeping. Jewish guilt. And after a while, the president finally decided, all right, 
I'll give this Jewish man, Chaim Weizmann, one hour. History tells us. It's a great story. And they got Chaim Weizmann to walk in and talk to President Truman. And one of the first votes in the UN, America, how do you vote? Yes for Israel. And they all follow the lead. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God is in control. God knew all this. God has control of the details of our lives. The story of Purim is such a great story. God is in control. And it should encourage us because we have problems, real problems, all of us. But if you serve him and love him and obey him and walk with him and make him your life, you're under his control. He will guide and direct you. One, we need to remember. Look at this. Look at this verse. Psalm 135. For I know the Lord is great, that he's above all gods. And, and this verse a lot of people struggle with. Verse 5. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. I like that verse. People don't like it. We don't want someone over us controlling us. Whatever God does, whatever he wants, he does. And it says, in the seas and in all deeps, he causes the vapors to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain who brings forth the wind from his, from his treasuries. One of my favorite verses, I love to quote it, mark it down. It's a good one, folks. Write this verse down. Job 37, 13. Listen, there's a lot in this. Whether for correction, and he corrects us, or for God's world, or because of his loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping love. He causes it to happen. That's God's control. He's got it all under control. He knows what he's doing. We can trust him. Lesson, God is faithful to his promises. To Israel and to us, he will always be with you. Faithful to all his promises to take care of you. If you serve him and love him and obey him and walk with him, he will guide and direct your life throughout your whole life. You say, well, things go wrong. Of course things go wrong. But if you don't serve him and don't love him and don't follow him, I feel sorry for you. He will turn you over and allow you to be at the hands of the world. God is faithful. God is in control and he's faithful to all his promises. There's no temptation no, uh, that has overtaken you that such is common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will provide you a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Third, we can trust God with the details of your life. All the details. For we know that all, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him to those who are called according to God's purpose. God gives us what we need. But the key is being faithful to Him. We have, we have a weak, weak body of Messiah in this world. There are many, many people who are believers in this world, I believe, that have put their trust in Messiah. You know, listen. If you're in this left bubble and you've never accepted Messiah, you've never put your trust in Him, you could be a nice person, a good person. But you live your life, and you've never said, God, I'm a sinner. I believe Yeshua the Messiah came to earth to die for my sins. I want to put my life in his hands. I want to accept him as my Messiah. And God places you in this bubble on the right. 
Listen carefully to what that means. You are saved. You are going to heaven. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled with God. Your sins have been paid for. You have been forgiven. You go to heaven. For sure. But if you don't read His Word and you don't pray and you don't love Him with all your heart and you don't follow and obey what He says and you don't worship Him and you don't live holy, godly lives and you don't give to Him and you don't worship Him, listen carefully, you are still going to heaven. But woe to what you have to go through to get there. You will suffer misery in this life. Guaranteed. You will be alienated from Him. And you suffer loss in heaven. Heaven is free. Yeshua died. But rewards and blessings there and here are based on how you live your life for Him today. The choice is yours. People say, well, if you don't live for him and you don't serve him, you're lost and going to hell. No, you're not. You're going to heaven if you've accepted him. Well, you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. Disagree all you want. You can't call it out. You can't. You are saved and going there. But if you want to experience God's closeness and blessings and, and his, his intimacy now, and you want to be blessed and have a well done faithful and good servant. You want to be put in charge of ten cities and many things and be blessed by God. Serve Him today. This is your chance. You can trust God with the details of our lives. And finally, last, we have a responsibility to God. Everyone, in the right bubble, you have a responsibility. You know what that responsibility Everyone look up here. I don't have to quote it. What's the next verse anyway? Okay, so if you remain silent today, God's plan is still going to get done. His work is still going to get done. You can't stop his work, but you will suffer, guaranteed. You will suffer, but who knows whether God didn't bring you here today to hear this word for such a time as this. Our responsibility today, right bubble, is to love him. Serve Him, walk with Him, obey Him. Be a Bible fanatic, a wise, spiritual, discerning fanatic, learning how to live in this world. We have a responsibility. What's the next one? I, I'm going without notes. Ah, we have a responsibility. Believers in the right bubble. Left bubble, people. I don't know who you are. I don't know who's accepting Him or not. You have a responsibility today. God promised the Jewish people on a certain day deliverance from the wicked people, from Haman, from the people who would destroy them. God said, I give you the deliverance. It is decreed by the king. You will be set free. But what must you do for that? Anybody? You got to rise up. You accept it, but you got to rise up and do something to defeat the enemy that came against you. That's what God told the book of Esther. What do we, non-believers? Okay. Yeah, that's, you have to rise up and defend yourself. Skip. Keep going. Ah, therefore, today, therefore, God says, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you accept His offer. 
well, I'm not going to take up arms. No, you don't have to take up arms. What you do have to do is say, Lord, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. You paid the price. You made it possible. I accept it. If you accept it, that's your responsibility to accept it and you have eternal life. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And John 1.12, but as many as them, many of those people over there, uh, many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to all those who believe in his name. It's our responsibility. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life.